In the same way I've described Bruce, when I describe what I call the four pillars of rock and roll, the four pillars are Elvis for the singular magnetic presence. Then comes Bob Dylan bringing lyrics into rock and roll songs and making them, you know, musical poetry and an art form. Then you get the Beatles with that electric band energy when they burst on the scene, the American scene in early 64. And then you've got Jimi Hendrix, the ultimate guitar hero. Bruce is not one of those four pillars. But like Captain Marvel, who is made up of the individual separate powers, Bruce is not one of those pillars. But what he is, he's the roof built over those pillars. gentlemen fans of the podcast fans of bruce springsteen around the world tonight i have an expert and not one but not two but three uh, fascinating pop culture topics if we want to talk twilight zone this man is here if you want to talk Silver Age comics, and we will be talking some Legion of Superheroes, he is the man to talk to. And finally, if you want to talk Bruce the Boss Springsteen, Arlen Schumer is the man to visit with, and Arlen is kind enough to join us on Set Listing Bruce tonight. Welcome to the show, Arlen. Jesse, thanks for having me on, man. That was a great introduction. I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be here with you. So now I'm going to have to I'm going to have to put the beginning as a post credit just for fun. <laughs> yeah, it's called pressing the erase button on yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, By the um, way, your introduction was excellent, seriously. Thank, thank you. you. That's appreciated. Uh, I am uh, we before we hit record um, it, we were talking a little bit. I I am just ecstatic to talk about you, talk with you because um, you do um, I I guess my first passion growing up was comic books. I yeah. uh, I was born in '59, uh, ah, so you know. Respect your elders. I got you by one year. You're yeah, the younger okay. brother, Jesse. You're the younger <laughs> brother. I always wanted and never got. And so you and I, right? I um, in fact I, I've told this story a couple of times. Um, my grandmother was the. By the way, you look so much younger than your years. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. We yeah. were one year apart. Yeah. So my grandmother uh, managed a post exchange, which is like a department store on a military base. And um, and I would go to work with her when I was young, young. And I would go to the spinner rack, take all the comics I want, brought them, bring them back to her. She would rip the covers off so that she could get credit and would give me all the comics. So I grew up reading comics without ever reading the cover, seeing the cover. Um, And those that is my earliest memories of comic books. Um, What was it like when you finally discovered covers? It was amazing. It was like, yeah, it was like, oh, wow, there's this whole other thing. Um, Now, we're going to get to Bruce in a minute. But are you a DC or Marvel guy? 
I grew up totally D.C. I, I call it the banal simplicity of D.C. My older brother, Steve, a year and a half older, we both grew up um, with comics, and he was the Marvel guy. He liked the Julius Schwartz D.C. superheroes, but that was it for D.C. He was mm -hmm. basically a Marvel Jack Kirby devotee. Yeah. And, and we would have these debates, but I gravitated towards the banal simplicity of DC in the Silver Age. Whenever I looked at my brother's marvels, they looked too busy, too many words. DC had this banal simplicity. The, the Superman titles by editor Weisinger had a, a children's book-like simplicity. Um, almost like, like a, like a, yeah, like, like primers for children. Well, it, you were saying it a different way than I always explain it, Arlen. Um, I, as I grew up, you know, and, and, you know, became nine, 10, 11, 12, and you, you did not have a steady flow of comics. You were, you were waiting, you depended on the kindness of your parents, right? And so if you bought a DC not me, book, but oh, I really? somehow had allowance. I don't know how I got my comics, but. I yeah. don't remember having to beg my mother to let me get comics. Oh, I had to. In fact, my first my first experience with with inflation was comics used to be twelve cents, so you could get two comics for a quarter. And then when they went to fifteen, all of a sudden you could only get one comic with a quarter. And my it was still worth it. Get over it. It was, but you could only get one comic I with the quarter. You're still hiding all that pain. <laughs> I am, Arlen. Jesse, so, let it go, man. Let it go. But if you bought a DC book, you knew you would get a full story. But if you bought a Marvel book, right. there's a good chance that there was it was going to be continued. So therefore, but that I, was also the beauty of the Silver Age is that yes. both companies had their styles in a way. Yes. Marvel had the Jack Kirby house style, yes. and then eventually the other great artists who kind of you know got more dynamic, mm -hmm. like Gene Colan and John Buscema and Romine and all those guys. Yes. But DC, they had separate editorial fiefdoms or fiefdoms. Yes. So the Julius Schwartz books, which my brother and I liked the most of the DC stuff, you know, they all had a, a tone and a feel and a look to them. And, you know, Schwartz had the, the Cadillac of DC artists. He yes. was like the number one. And then Weisinger and the Superman books yes. had a look and a feel and a style to them. You know, Kurt Swan drew every cover. Um, yeah. And then there were, you know, Kanger and the War books, which I never read. I was a superhero zombie. But, you know, so that was DC. And there were both pluses and minuses about that approach. Yes. And Marvel, in a sense, by having a more homogeneous approach, that also ended up being deleterious once Kirby left Marvel. Yes. And then it became this sort of super successful commercially. Yeah. But again – this kind of house style where DC always seemed to foster individuals. Yes. Like Walt Simonson could have only broken in to DC comics in 1973 with his radically different superhero style after right. many years of everybody trying to draw like Neil Adams, you know? Yeah. And so DC had the Bernie Wrightsons and the Mike Kaludas and the Neil Adams and, you know, so many of these great individual artists working for all these individual editors. Yeah. You know, Kubert was doing Tarzan and Enemy. I mean, you know, so many of these golden, uh, yeah. Silver Age greats were right. doing stuff at DC. 
Yeah. You know. But anyway, they no. both uh, had They both, their, they uh, did. Uh, I absolutely, and I promised listeners we're going to get to Bruce. Um, I, I grew up adoring the Superboy books. Um, Legion of Superheroes uh, to this day is one of my favorite um, Drawn by series. Uh, well, um, you know, I, I, I loved it when um, I, I, you know, I love it when originally it was Swan, right? But I also, Mike Grell, do you, ah. you can't see this, right? With the ah. hands like this, ah. like, right? He oh he drew listen, his hands. I listen, I can't keep talking if you're. Oh no! Don't get me started on Mike Rell. I'm not a fan. Oh okay. Let's on because already my temperature is boiling. Okay, I we're gonna move on. We're gonna move on. Slowly, I turn. You know, I'm a, I'm a Neil Adams. I lecture on Neil Adams. Okay, you do. I, I work for Neil Adams. I'm, okay. a, I'm a scholar of Neil Adams. Yes. Mike Grell is one of the worst Neil Adams swipers. Ah, I did not know that. Yet, very successful. He's got a lot of fans, case in point. Yeah. But, yeah. man, it's like I want to make the sign of the cross when you mention his name. Who is who? Uh, if you were talking Legion artist, who would you call, pick? Well, while it's always going to be the Swan Klein definitive version, because, listen, the first letter I ever wrote to DC Comics when I was eight years old was to Legion of Superheroes when they killed off Feral Lad. Yes, indeed. I've still never gotten over that. DC had a chance to have their own Iron Man or Iron Boy, and they yes. killed him off. And I wrote a letter at eight years old, right? But uh. I also have an affection, and I know a lot of you know serious comic fans know what I'm talking about when I mention the name John Forte, I guess maybe. Yeah. Unless the name is pronounced Fort, but he drew the Legion in the early 60s right before Swan Klein because he died in 1965. I don't, ah. know, I don't know what he died from, but he had a very kind of flat, mannequin-like style, which sounds negative, but in the world of comic art, it had a strange appeal, kind of like the work of Al Feldstein – not the editor, but Al Feldstein, the illustrator, because at EC Comics, he also illustrated so many of their covers. And he had a very sort of flat, stylized drawing style. And, you know, whoever is listening to this that knows what I'm talking about when I say the Legion of Superheroes drawn by John Forte, they'll know what I'm talking about. It had a strange appeal is the best way I can describe it. Loved Cochran's work as well. And uh, as it grew yeah, into post Swan Klein, I'm not. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Well, once you get all right, so we got to. I want to start. I always love starting. Want to know how you segue from comics to Bruce? Uh, you tell me. Bruce is the superhero of rock and roll. Oh, there you and go. And what I mean by that yes. is that in the same way, Captain Marvel, one of the archetypal iconic superheroes, is made up of the word. The letters that make up Shazam, right. the wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, the something of uh, Apollo, whatever, you know, Shazam, the something yeah. of Zeus, the wisdom of Zeus or something. In the same way I've described Bruce when I describe what I call the four pillars of rock and roll. The All four right. pillars are Elvis for the singular magnetic presence. Then comes Bob Dylan bringing lyrics into rock and roll songs and making them, you know, musical poetry in an art form. Right. Then you get the Beatles with that electric band energy 
when they burst on the scene, the American scene in early 64. And then you've got Jimi Hendrix, the ultimate guitar hero. Bruce is not one of those four pillars. But like Captain Marvel, who is made up of the individual separate powers, Bruce is not one of those pillars. But what he is, he's the roof built over those pillars. He He is equal parts, all of them. And if people think he doesn't have a little bit of Jimi Hendrix in him, uh, look at my upcoming webinar this Wednesday when I show the 1978 clip from the Capitol Theater of him playing that Prove It All Night live version. Yeah. If you tell me he wasn't channeling Hendrix that night, in addition to about five other guitar solos that'll blow your mind, uh, there's a multimedia lecture on my, posted on my website and my YouTube channel where you could see the multimedia live lecture that I gave last year in New York City on the 41st anniversary of the September 1978 show yeah. that I maintain is the greatest single show of Bruce and the Street Band's career. Yeah. But that's a whole other story. But my point is getting back to comics and superheroes and Bruce. So Bruce is therefore, like Captain Marvel, made up of the greatest parts of rock and roll what I call the rock and roll promise delivered. Bruce was the only new Dylan to become a new Dylan and go even beyond Dylan. Bruce is the promise of Elvis Presley that he squandered, delivered, because Bruce has that singular presence that only Elvis had before Bruce. And in the same way Bruce said about Born to Run, the album, that he wanted to have the vocals of Roy Orbison with the lyrics of Dylan and the sound of Phil Spector's wall of sound. That's what I mean about this alchemical combination of separate elements of rock and roll that nobody ever put together before, like Bruce put them together. Yeah. That is what makes Bruce, like I said, he's not one of the individual foundational pillars, but he is the roof built over them. He is the superhero of rock and roll. So we would call him... How's that for a segue? I love that segue. He is kind of a composite Springsteen. Instead of the composite Superman, he's the composite Springsteen. Anybody who's deemed original by layman, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything deemed original. Yes. Actually, when you dissect it, you know, as in, in study, in criticism... You see that everybody, every creative person is putting together an amalgam of all of their influences, all the things that made them become a creative person, all the things that they love. And then you've got to add that, you know, substance X, you do. which That's is your own fun. individual experience. Yes. Absolutely. And that is the magic element. But when you piece together what they then end up creating, you'll see. It's just an amalgam. When you piece together Bruce's early music, mm-hmm. you can see the 1970, just a year before Van Morrison, right. 1972 Van Morrison, Bruce was incorporating some of that in his work. Yeah, you can yeah. hear the Dylan, you can hear all that, but even in that first album, by Bruce combining all those things with a rock and roll band, you know, Dylan only really had that rock and roll band for a few years there yeah. in the mid-60s. Bruce had the East Street band, you know, going on 50 years now, various yeah. 
versions of it. And they are I mean, I think it is a good it is a perfect example of the sum being greater than the parts. But the parts are pretty good and don't often get the recognition they deserve. Absolutely. Tyrant yeah. Clemens, in the same way Bruce Springsteen is not even in the talking when they talk about greatest guitarists. You know, both yeah. Guitar World and some other guitar magazine a couple of years ago, they had a top 100 electric guitarist. Where do you think Bruce placed in either poll? I'm going to say below 50, in the lower 50, lower half. Okay, you ready? Are you sitting yeah, down? I'm I can sitting speak. down. Yeah. He didn't place in either at all in yep. top 100s. Wow. Clarence Clemens, if you mention his name to any kind of, you know, somebody that knows jazz and guys like John Coltrane and all the great right. Bird, Charlie, you know, the list is endless. Yeah. You know, Coleman Hawkins. And I don't even know jazz, but I know there are a million. Yeah. There's a lot of great sax players. But, but. If you dare mention that Clarence Clemens is the greatest saxophonist of all time, they would laugh at you in the same way if you said Bruce is a great guitarist. He didn't even place in two top 100 lists at all. So what I what's really interesting is a few months I had a um, – I want to finish up on my – Okay, Clarence go ahead. I'm sorry. Get you, I'm, go, go ahead. What I'm basically saying is if you were there when Clarence Clemens, just by stepping forward one foot – with that saxophone, again, look at the 1978 Prove It All Night Live that I'm going to show Wednesday night on my webinar. When he goes to play sax solo, it was the only way I can describe the reaction from the audience to Clarence Clemens playing one of his solos was like in the ninth inning of the World Series with two outs and bases loaded and them down by, you know, five runs, four runs or three runs. That somebody hits a walk-off homer with two outs yeah. in the bottom of the ninth of the seventh game of the World Series. Yes. You know that roar from the crowd? Yeah. Now, you show me another saxophonist in history. I don't care whether it's jazz, rock, soul, you name it, that ever elicited that reaction. Now, you might say, well, Arlen, that's Bruce Springsteen's music. Well, <laughs> you know – Everything those great sax players from jazz played was not necessarily, quote, their music either. Exactly. But that's not the point. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is when you describe the effect of Clarence's sax playing, which is a very subjective, ethereal idea because you're talking about what makes great art. But it's more than just playing notes. It's more than playing notes fast. It's more than just playing notes with efficiency and speed. It's like the difference between Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing and Neil Young's, who's my like favorite electric guitarist. Mm -hmm. I like the single note when it's bent. Right. I'm not interested in the facility of somebody uh, like Steve Vai and all these guitar heroes that, right. by the way, all placed ahead of Bruce on the top 100. <laughs> you know, you see what I'm saying? I do see what it's you're saying. It's not Arlen. how many notes you can play in, in three seconds. Right. It's it's how each note is making you feel. Yeah. And that's a subtext for Bruce's entire career. And that's why everybody plays. When you see that version of Prove It All Night from the Capitol, when Danny Federici gets to do that solo at the end of the song, mm -hmm. it might be the greatest rock and roll organ solo of all time. Yeah. 
Now, how can I make such a claim where I'm purposely going over the top with my voice to yes. try to get across to the people listening that I mean what I'm saying? Yes. That you listen to that solo, you watch the video that's on YouTube, you see the emotion and commitment that that Danny plays that solo in those 35 seconds he has for that solo. Right. And that is exactly what I'm talking about when, yeah, the, the Bruce and Eastry band, the, 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 the total is greater than the, 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 the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yes. Well, let's not, not realize that the parts, like Max Weinberg, is the greatest drummer in rock and roll, period. And I'll defend him to the death. So, all right, let me step in. You, you're on a roll. I get you. Um, I, what I was going to say is I had a, a, a bass player um, on the show just a couple months ago. Gary Fallon. And that's what he talked about. He said that the people that know, he said other bass players know the the way he he is the ba- he is the, the the bedrock of that band that he is not showy he just brings it out and is brilliant every night I so think Bruce once called him the foundation of the East Street Nation yeah. Gary yeah. USW talent absolutely and you listen especially you don't hear him as a, as much up front in the mix but yeah. you listen to some like live versions like 1975 when they did going back yeah. from the Roxy in California, and you listen to Gary's bass playing going up and down the scales in these melodic arpeggios that'll just take your breath away. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, Arlen, can you remember, remember the first, first time... time... Oh, we got oh, a little echo. Okay. Learn, learn Bruce. Bruce. When you did hear Bruce, and what about him spoke to you? Okay. I think I sent you this uh, essay that I wrote up. You did, but okay. yeah. Well, you know, the same way John Landau wrote that essay the night that Bruce blew his mind and he went home and wrote the real paper article in Boston, and that had the famous line, I've seen, you know, Rock and Roll Future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. And if you know that article, which... It was really an essay. It went on for pages. And he only mentions Bruce in the last six inches of the column. What were all those other pages about? It was John Landau taking us through a reminiscence of his history in rock and roll itself. What made him love rock and roll? What made him become Rolling Stone's top records review editor critic? John Landau in 1974 was the man at Rolling Stone. And he sees Bruce Springsteen open up for Bonnie Raitt at the Harvard Square Theater, May, whatever, 9th, 74. And he just happens to debut this new song he's been working on called Born to Run, by the way. And that's the show. Bonnie Raitt so loved Bruce, she let him do his whole 90-minute set to open up for her. And that's the that's the show that Landau, what, his mind was blown. So what I have to say about my first exposure to Bruce and the fact that I've written about it and talked about it over all these years is because it was as profound <clears throat> in my own life because I had just turned 17 in the summer of 75. I was a major Elton John fan. 
from, you know, Elton John from 70 to 75, that's his golden age, you know, and and early 70s, there was a, there was hardly any real rock and roll. I mean, you know, Elton John was at least doing things like Saturday Night's All Light, Right for Fighting and Crocodile Rock when everything in, on the radio in those days I'm talking about AM radio. I was an AM radio kid. I didn't get a stereo until way later. So, so was I. I was an I AM kid. I missed out on the heavy albums of Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple. All that stuff passed me by. I was an AM radio kid because my mother had a car with it that only had AM radio. So I'm talking about AM radio. And, and in the early 70s, it was totally dominated by soft rock and the L.A. singer-songwriters and Cat Stevens and James Taylor. And not that I love a lot of that stuff. But I'm saying nobody was playing what we nobody was even using the term rock and roll in the early 70s. So imagine it's the summer of 75. And by the way, the New York DJs, I was living in northern New Jersey. They didn't play Bruce's first two albums on FM radio because I got that stereo in 1973. And I could have I was listening to FM radio the year Bruce's first album came out. And yet, because Mike Appel, Bruce's first manager, was so aggressive and, and zealous in his in his devotion and, and vision for Bruce that he alienated the New York DJs. And that it was sort of like a cabal. They sort of didn't play his first two albums. The New York market did not hear of Bruce until Born to Run, whereas Boston, Philadelphia, Cleveland, they were in on Bruce from the get-go. But I'll never forgive those New York DJs because in those couple of years when I was a major Elton John fan, I could have been a Bruce fan. <laughs> I'll never get back those missing years, but I digress. So it's the summer of 75. Elton John's Captain Fantastic had just come out. I was a big fan. Someone saved my life tonight. You know, great song, right? Summer of 75. His last great single that fall was Island Girl. And that to me is the end of Elton John's golden period. And it just so happens I'm... Just got my license to drive. I'm living in North Jersey. I'm driving down the highway, and out from the radio comes this song. And it immediately hit me because that opening drum roll sounds like thoroughbreds coming out of the gate, but I knew the song Locomotion by Little Eva because in the early 70s, there was a retro period because of the movie American Graffiti where people were recycling all those 50s and early 60s hits but I recognized that and then and then this this guitar figure you know I mean it just sounded like just like an instant like it sounded like I knew it but I didn't know it and then bells and things that reminded me of those Phil Spector songs in the early 60s be My Baby and, you know, of all those Wall of Sound songs that I loved, again, <laughs> because I heard them on the radio. <clears throat> and then, most importantly, there – oh, and then, of course, the, the, there's this James Bond, you know, guitar. I was a big James Bond fan, and that – that guitar sound. This is years before Rick Ocasek and the Cars – you know, sort of brought that sound back. Bruce was doing it years before. He's pre-punk. He's pre-new wave. The stuff he he was doing. But but and then there's this sax solo in the middle of the song. Now I played the sax when I was in sixth grade. I love the saxophone. And there's plenty of great rock songs that have great saxophone in them that precede you know Bruce. So 
But I never heard a sax solo as exciting as this. But most importantly, there was the singer that was singing. Again, I was a big Elton John fan. Elton's a great vocalist, but I right. knew intellectually that those weren't his words. They were Bernie Taupin's. Now, great singers like Frank Sinatra and all everybody, you know, they they don't write their own songs and they're considered great singers. But, you know, to me, the greatness of rock and roll was always when somebody wrote and sang their own material. Yes. So while I loved Elton John, the minute I heard the commitment of this singer like I had never heard before, somebody that was singing like his life depended on it. And then we get to the end of the song. There's this bridge like I've never heard before in the history of my listening to music. And then at the end, he does these whoa, whoa, whoas that reminded me of the Frankie Valley Four Seasons songs that I grew up with as a kid. So right. what I'm trying to say, Jesse, is that this song, as I'm driving along, you know, in Fairlawn, New Jersey, just getting my license, is blowing my mind. I had to pull over to the side of the road because I couldn't believe what I was what I had just heard. It sounded like a little bit of everything I loved about rock and roll since I first heard the Four Seasons Big Girls Don't Cry on a radio in yeah. summer camp in 1963. And I thought the lyrics were big girl, small fry. Because <laughs> you're a kid, the girls are taller than the boys. Right. But that was where my love affair with rock and roll began. So it's like 10 years late, 12 years later. I'm hearing the song that is sounding like the theme song of rock and roll itself. It's like and, it's like someone had gone into a laboratory and taken all the good things that you loved yes. in music and built a I have to mention the lyrics. Yes. You know, will you walk with me out on the wire, baby? I'm just a scared and lonely rider. I want to know if love is real. I mean, these lyrics by a singer singing like his life depended on it blew my mind. And even the song's title had an epic cinerama quality like only the theme song of rock and roll could have a title like this. Born to Run. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I can't say enough about and that is my first exposure to Bruce Springsteen. And you were sold from then on. Yeah. It was it was a love affair that has continued to this day. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see him until 78. I really uh, missed the great opportunity to have seen him on the Chicken Scratch tour of 77, but that's a whole yeah. other story. But luckily, I did get to see him. I'm wearing the button here, if you can see. I can. My very, fir I, the, my very first Bruce show was the very first time he headlined Madison Square Garden. Okay. Because he played there in 73 as the opening act for Chicago on the CBS record conventions, infamous tour, really, because Bruce hated it. Yeah. And that's why he swore he would never be an opening act nor have an opening act. Yeah. But, um, but uh, that was my first time seeing him. And, um, you know, what can I tell you? So I want to transition, Arlen. Yes. I always like to preface this question with, uh, I do not believe that, the number of times you've seen him live is a fair barometer of your fandom. I believe that because of your age, because of economic situations, because of where you're located, all can dictate how many times you've seen Bruce live. But, I got a simple answer. But for the record, 
do you know how many times you've seen them? No, because my answer to everything you just said yeah. is quality, not quantity. Number one, Bruce has a five-decade career. There's yeah. always going to be somebody that's seen him earlier than you. Yes. I'll never forget a dozen years ago, wherever I was, and maybe at the Meadowlands, and I'm talking to a guy older than me, and he said he saw Bruce at the Gaslight in 1972 when he played there, and it, you can find it on YouTube. And yeah. in my webinar on Wednesday, yeah. it's the very first cut that I show. And he was at the Gaslight. Oh, that's awesome. And remember I told you, I missed Bruce playing at the shore in New Jersey when I was living in North Jersey because I didn't know about him. I didn't have an older relative that knew the shore scene that could drag me down. I was just a couple years too young. And so but I, I, I want so you to finish your point, but hold on, Arlen. Just I want to yeah. I want to respond, then I want you to continue your thought. Um, to prove your point, I had a guy on the show about a year or so ago and he saw bruce during the same time period that uh landau was not right. that necessary show but Which that many time. people say was bruce's greatest yeah. version of the east street band yeah. and so Ernest harder on drums yes only for six months david sanchez so yeah you know, so he he tells me he looks over to his date and yeah. said we have just seen one of the greatest performers of all times. Right. And so he's during that time period in the podcast. That's he says, what everybody who saw from that era yeah. came out saying. But what he said, Arlen, which to prove your point, he said, right. but only if I'd known sooner, I could have gone to those shows in the early 70s. Like Schindler's List. I could have done more. Yes, exactly. This, so my point is, yes, this gets back to your original point. When it comes to Bruce fandom. And this goes pretty much in, in life. It's always quality over quantity. The amount of Bruce shows, good for you. But the point is, is every Bruce fan comes into Bruce five decades later from a circuitous, their own route. Some people saw him back in 72. Some people just saw him on TV. Some people were exposed to him on Broadway. Who are you to basically judge another Bruce fan and base it on quantity of shows because I don't I'm one of these guys I don't keep ticket stubs I don't keep track of everything like you asked me Arlen how many Bruce shows I can give you a rough estimate I'd say it's between 50 and 100 shows okay. oh, since 1978 but who gives a flying F you what you know yes. what I mean it's like it's all about the shows I can remember Yes. That I can recall to you. It's about the effect those shows had on me. You know, if, if like, for instance, it's always just little glimmers of memory. When I think about I saw Bruce in Albany, maybe it was the rising tour. You see, it doesn't really matter. But I remember I was in Albany and Bruce teases the audience with a little bit of a song that ends up bringing the house down. And when I say he teases us because he doesn't finish playing the whole song, and yet it brought the house down. And I bet you you'll never be able to guess what song it is. No, was. no, tell me. The song Fire. How funny. But my point is that is my memory of Albany. Yes. Does it matter that I don't have the ticket stub? No. No. You know, it's in my head where it counts, yeah. where it matters, where it makes me relate that story to you. 
and have fun sharing this loving. It's all so, about love. So I and I, I echo that perfectly because um, in Louisville, Kentucky, during the um, the second river tour, um, I you mean, I, you mean the one he did a couple years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the show was over. He had ended with jump, and uh, you know I was uh, up there uh, on my odd cover for Bruce. Yes, and then um, I saw Max give a drumstick to someone in the audience, and all of a sudden Bruce picked up his guitar, and the band started looking around, and like he wasn't ready to finish, and they did. Bobby Jean. Max drummed with one drumstick? I'm sure someone got him another drumstick, right? But that moment stuck with me because I could tell he just wanted to do one more. And when you think of however many Bruce shows you know, yes. you've seen, I guarantee you that you have just select memories, like little flash bulbs that – but it's like you know, when it comes to comic books, I could – name you specific issues that neil adams drew a batman yeah that i can remember i was sitting on my bedroom floor in a one-bedroom garden apartment yes eating a thuman's bologna sandwich with mustard and lettuce on a seeded hard roll drinking a cot chocolate cream soda the brand cod is not even around anymore. The slogan was, it's cot to be good. <laughs> but they combine my two favorite flavors, cream soda and chocolate. You know, cream soda is essentially vanilla soda. Right. So by making it chocolate cream. But my point is, when you show me that comic book, I can immediately, it's like a sense memory. But this is where Marcel Proust, biting into the Madeline, and ends up writing Remembrance of Things Past. Yes. It, it's these sense memories, taste, smell. The smell of an old comic brings people back. But, you know, you mentioned, like I said, Arlen, what was Bruce's first experience? And I can recall the impact Born to Run had on a car radio, you know, when I was 17, just beginning to enjoy the thrill of driving. I mean, so, are you kidding me? Driving, I do, yes. And then the power... Radio, I mean, it had all the elements. It's like my own American graffiti. I still have plenty more to do with Arlen, so I'm going to stop it here. And if you come back later this week, you'll hear the second half of the interview where he talks about uh, Springsteen's Dark Gears. He talks about outtakes, his love of outtakes. And his criticism of Bruce sometimes and the choice of songs he picked for his official releases. It's a great discussion. Please hope you come back. For now, take care of yourself. Be safe. Wear an effing mask. You know I love you. Thank you. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at setlustingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. We have a website, www.setlustingbruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts, as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB all-star band, 
These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store where you can purchase Set Lessing Brew shirts, as well as a Mary Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, that listening Bruce. Set Listing Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.